Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. Fuck of the century. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And it's entirely appropriate for you to say such a thing because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we have been talking about the films of 1992. And we're here at our season finale when, as always, we have polled our audience asking you what movie we should talk about. And we always come up with a theme. This season, our theme was femme fatales because these kinds of thrillers were huge in the 90s and especially in 1992. We asked you whether we should talk about Single White Female, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, or this movie that you chose called Basic Instinct. And it was not a surprise to me that Basic Instinct won because it was such a hugely popular movie. I went right for the vagina. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's one way to put you're it. Lost. You're a little lost for words there, Josh. Maybe you need author Catherine Trammell to help you think of what to say next year. Yeah, maybe so. She seems to be able to write a book in like a week. So <laughs> she's obviously good at coming up with words, which uh, maybe Catherine Trammell should have a podcast. That could be Basic Instinct 3. Catherine Trammell has a podcast. Mm. And that's probably mm. what would happen too nowadays. What's up the dress? Yeah. <laughs> right and every every podcast guest ends up dead i mean it's so yeah right it's so funny because look obviously this was the big thing like oh oh there's a scene and her legs are spread and you see her her v vagina and everything and it's like it's such a brief like second and you don't really see anything more than you know even if you did it's a vagina guys like it's so crazy that this was the biggest deal you know, I get it where people like, you know, they say like it's the most paused upon frame in movie history at home video and everything. But like the idea that this whole movie is based on like one shot with a vagina is so crazy to me. Yeah, I feel like you you would have to pause it in order to really see anything. Watching it again this time, I remembered, obviously, I remembered that scene and it's super famous. Even if you've never seen the movie, you would know that that scene was coming. That was a big deal. And I was just amazed watching it this time. Yeah, how brief it is, how far away it is, and how much of a big deal that that has been and continues to be. I feel like anyone, if you mention this movie, that is the one thing that they know about it. That is the one thing that they think of. And, and you know, they talk about it, how uh, Verhoeven says Sharon Stone knew. Sharon Stone says she didn't know, but she says that Verhoeven made the right choice because from a story standpoint, it really does give power to that character. But uh, it just, it, it's the vagina that lives on, Josh. <laughs> it does live on. Thankfully, it's, it's not, not dead yet for Sharon Stone. So anyway, there's more to this movie than just that scene. Although, again, sometimes you wouldn't realize that there is because that's all that people talk about. And that's what they were talking about in 1992. This movie was a huge, huge hit. It grossed $352.9 million on its budget of $49 million. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1992. I'm trying to think of a movie like this being the fourth highest grossing movie of the year in 2022. We are not getting any Marvel characters flashing their genitals. Right. So I was going to say it's not going to happen. Number one, which we talked about, was Aladdin. Imagine if uh, Jasmine had shown uh, <laughs> what was going on. 
<laughs> I'm sure many people do imagine that, and you can find I'm it sure. on the it, internet. If it would it would give a whole new meaning to I can show you the world. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. So also, uh, this was a very controversial film. Uh, I I I read multiple different citations for how much exactly they had to cut out of this film to achieve the R rating versus the NC-17 rating. I think Wikipedia says it was 35 to 40 seconds, but then reading through reviews, different reviewers had different numbers that they cited. I think Siskel and Ebert mentioned like 68 seconds or something like that. But certainly it was one of these movies where they're making these tiny little edits to just get it to the exact maximum amount of like thrusting and and nudity and whatever on screen so that they can get this R rating and not get an right. NC-17. And that was something that everyone knew about. Again, when this came out, it was like, this was the movie that was so hardcore that was nearly rated NC-17. Thrusting on someone's pelvis, bad. Thrusting ice pick into their face. Okay. Right, yes. Although I think, I think to be fair, one of the cuts was some number of ice pick thrusts in the opening murder. So they did care a little bit about violence, but yes, but I think that's the, only because she was, she, she was still thrusting on him while she was ice picking him. True. That, There's so. multiple kinds of thrusts happening yeah. at the same time. And yes, of course the MPAA is still to this day, extremely hypocritical about depictions of sexuality versus depictions of violence in movies. Those Marvel characters can kill literally billions of people in their films and get a PG-13, but God forbid Captain America fucked. <laughs> right. Because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Well, we, you know, he's, a, he's got a, a real nice, really good, clean American relationship, Josh, with his wife. He does. He does. Uh, they had babies by fun. magic. Uh, Captain America? Yeah. Did? No, that was that was Wanda. Are you thinking of WandaVision? No, I'm just saying you could never see him have sex, so he would have to have a baby by True. magic. Oh, okay. Because there was also the show where they literally had babies by magic, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> see, I can't even make a joke because Marvel's already actually done it in a different, different setting. So. Yeah, let's move on from Marvel, maybe, and talk about Basic Instinct again. Um, so this is one of these movies, and I feel like this has come up weirdly multiple times. This is one of these movies that was nominated both at the Oscars and at the Razzies. It was nominated for two Oscars for Best Editing and Best Original Score. It was also nominated at the Golden Globes for actually for Best Actress for Sharon Stone as well as for the score. And the Razzies it was nominated for were Worst Actor for Michael Douglas. Worst Supporting Actress for Jean Triplehorn. And in one of these things that the Razzies do that are super annoying, where they make up little cutesy things to nominate, they nominated Worst New Star for Sharon Stone's tribute to Theodore Beaver Cleaver, which I assume is a play on the word Cleaver, I guess. I don't no, know. No, it's a happen. play on a it's a play on the word beaver because she shows her vagina. Oh. Have I not okay. mentioned that yet? <laughs> it's a lame Razzie thing. Not. And first of all, yeah. I thought her vagina gave at least an adequate performance. <laughs> Fair enough. For the split that second. is true. That's why I was thinking of the stabbing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you were way vagina off, Josh. Is, is unimpeachable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, But that's what it must have been for. And it's so lame that they no, did that, right. Josh. You're right. Um, yeah, it is, it is extremely lame. I was like on Wikipedia, like, 
what did the beaver do on Leave It to Beaver that was like this movie? <laughs> Josh, you just didn't grow up in like the playground where they were talking about, you know, I, slang, you know, oh, I saw some, I saw not. some beaver. <laughs> yeah, I think of it from like the naked gun, like, you know, that's quite a beaver. Yeah, or nice beaver. Like yeah. Uh, it, it's slang for a vagina, Josh. Yes, yes. In case our listeners were wondering what that well, was. Well, you were wondering what it was, so, I feel like. I was. Well, I know that if you had asked me, I just wasn't making that proper connection. But yeah, in conclusion, fuck the Ramses, <laughs> right? As we've said many times. Yes, uh, yeah, it's pretty lame. But Josh, what I thought, first of all, even beyond that, Michael Douglas and Gina Triplehorn didn't really deserve Razzie nominations either for that. Uh, not at all. Not at all. And how about the fact that it was... I, I tried to place this in context of today and how this would never happen. It was nominated for six MTV Movie Awards and won for Best Female and Most Desirable Female. Obviously, I don't think they'd ever give a Most Desirable Female Award anymore. Yeah, they, they must have cut those awards. That would definitely not fly. Yeah. So And also, this movie would never be nominated on an MTV movie. The 90s were so much more edgy than you, you know, you uh, snowflakes are today. I mean, I wonder, though, like, was Fifty Shades of Grey nominated for an MTV Movie Award? It wouldn't surprise me if it was. So I feel like it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. Like, no, I'm sure they don't offer those most desirable awards anymore. But the idea that a controversial, sexy movie might get MTV Movie Award nominations, I feel like that could still It was nominated for Best Kiss and Breakthrough Performance. Fifty Shades of Grey was? Yeah, MTV Movie Awards. see, there you go. There you go. Anyway. Tune in for our new podcast on the history of the MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> Something that I uh, want to start. So let's do All it. All right. Yeah. That's, Dave's <laughs> going to make it happen. So this movie, obviously, I mean, it made a lot of money with with at the box office. It was enjoyed by audiences. It got a B plus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, which is pretty strong for a controversial movie because I feel like these kinds of films, a lot of people will like performatively go to see them just to hate them. So the fact that it got that good rating when I'm sure that was like a balance between a bunch of A's and, and some F's or whatever is uh, is on the whole uh, pretty good. But critics were definitely mixed on this film. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down and uh, did not care for it and spent a lot of time making complaints that to me are really missing the point of what this movie is. Ebert, and I'll read some from his review, was really fixated on the ending and the idea that you don't know for sure, or rather that the final shot, the literal final shot of the movie is all that tells you who the real killer is and that it could have been another way were it not for the final shot. And that, I, I don't know, I feel like it's weird for Eber to be complaining about something that's ambiguous or whatever. Well, we've but, seen that before. I think we've seen that before with him on a, we talked about that on a different episode. Uh, but well, it could yeah. be. So get ready. Here come the spoilers. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, he doesn't specifically spoil why that is or what is in the final shot, but really does talk about that. And 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 Siskel basically complained that without the sex scenes, this movie would be worthless. Which a I don't think is true. And b like that's like going back to Marvel. That's like saying, oh, without the action scenes, this movie would be worthless. Like it's an action movie. You know, this is an erotic thriller. It's a movie that has sex as its essential element. Like you can't just say without, without these particular scenes, this, there would be nothing to this movie. Like the scenes are in there because they're part of the movie. So I, I felt like they really 
even though Ebert has proved himself in many of our uh, past episodes that we've quoted to be extremely horny, he just didn't appreciate this one. Mm. Well, let's hear it, Josh. So, yes. So in his written review, Roger Ebert said, this is not a movie where the outcome depends upon the personality or behavior of the characters. It's just a wind-up machine to jerk us around. I left the movie feeling depressed and manipulated because it didn't matter how hard I tried to follow the plot and figure things out. The whole movie was just toying with me. It kept me interested and guessing right up until that final shot, which revealed that all of my efforts were pointless since the guilt or innocence of the characters was a flip of the coin based on evidence that could be read both ways. Hmm. I probably wouldn't have gone with jerk us around for this movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the best choice of words there. <laughs> I mean, so you're saying he wanted it more clearly cut as opposed to less clearly cut there or what? I think, yeah, I think he wanted to be able to figure it out himself. Like, And this is a thing that I personally find annoying about the way that certain people watch mystery movies and the way that some of mystery films are constructed where it's like it's a word problem or something. Like if you wrote down enough details and you added them up together, you could figure out the answer at the end of the movie. Like that is not the point of a movie. A movie is not a puzzle, you know, a puzzle piece, Dave. A movie is not a word problem. Yeah. And so a movie right. is a story. And sometimes in the story, you can't figure it all out because the characters can't figure it all out. So yeah, I think that was what he wanted. Yeah. He wanted to be able to figure it out himself and not have to rely on that final shot, which is ambiguous. And we can talk about this more later, maybe. But right. who really is the murderer? I don't think you get a definitive answer there at the end. I, I, I agree, because you can you can say the final shot tells you who it is, or you could say this is now this person has free reign based on everything that's gone out um, to, to commit a crime like that. But I think the bigger point here, Josh, is what you're saying is if you have a podcast where you put puzzle pieces about movies about <laughs> your, how you're a huge piece of garbage, you know, there's some there's some accuracy to that, Josh. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, of course, it's not the kind of puzzle yeah, pieces that yeah, Dave absolutely. takes uh, into account. But but I feel like this is. Yeah, if if I may, actually, um, it has nothing to do with that. But like, I, I, I think and we talked about this with the Sixth Sense episode when we did 1999, like ever since twists have just been such a big part of movie making in the last 20 years. Everyone's always trying to beat movies. And that's something that's always bugged. Right. Me. I think mm. so. And I think we see this a lot, too, now with like serialized TV shows that people are only satisfied if they can like solve the puzzle. And it's like, why are you watching stuff? Like, what do you like narrative <laughs> art? No. Go play a video game. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, and I, I don't mind if I, I, I you know, I kind of like it when I can't solve it. And then like it comes together and, I'm, and then it makes as long as it makes sense. You know, then I'm like, cool, that's that's pretty good. Like uh, there was that great uh, limited series on HBO called The Head, which was about a murder mystery in Antarctica. And like, you know, I did not solve that. But at the end, they it was such a wild turn and they made it work. I was like, man, that's awesome that you guys did that. And I think that's great. Absolutely. If you can get to the end of something and there's a plot twist and you think back and you realize how it all added up. I also think it's cool when movies are just weird and surreal and you get to the end and you're like, no, that didn't make sense. But what a ride that movie took me on. And I was fascinated mm -hmm. the whole time. And I feel like that's more of what we're getting here with Basic Instinct. Hmm. So you like movies? Apparently other people don't. <laughs> or at least I feel like they're not. Anyway, we'll get off that topic. 
and talk about Janet Maslin in the New York Times, who enjoyed this movie. And I feel like most of the way that if critics enjoyed it, they they looked at it as kind of a guilty pleasure. And uh, so she said, Mr. Verhoeven is not seriously inconvenienced by the script's inconsistencies or even by the fact that it eventually devolves into a series of house calls. The director's forte is slam-bang sensationalism of the sort that transcends ordinary nitpicking, and his skill is readily apparent. Basic Instinct transfers Mr. Verhoeven's flair for action-oriented material to the realm of Hitchcockian intrigue, and the results are viscerally effective even when they don't make sense. Drawing powerfully on the seductiveness of his actors and the intensity of their situation, Mr. Verhoeven easily suspends all disbelief. So, I mean, and I, I'll get to it in our next segment, but there is one thing that didn't make sense to me that really took me out of the whole movie from enjoying it more. But I do agree, performances are top notch. Uh, I mean, Sharon Stone just smolders off the screen. Well, some of her best work, I think, and, you know, obviously her star making performance. And, uh, you know, Michael Douglas is this is who did who did these types of movies better than him. Yeah, I agree. I think the performances here are all, all really good. Certainly not Razzie worthy in any way. I think they're really good also because they're exactly pitched to the kind of movie that this is the kind of movie yeah. that Paul Verhoeven is making, which is this elevated trash. It is stylized ridiculousness. And that is what he's good at. That's what he did in his action movies before this in Total Recall and Robocop. And, and that's what he does here too. So I think if a different director had made this script, and I will we'll talk about maybe the ridiculousness of Joe Esterhaus's career and the insane amounts of money he was paid for these scripts that probably didn't deserve that, Without Paul Verhoeven, this would not have worked, or at least without a director of Paul Verhoeven's skill, this would not have worked. But it's entertaining because he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's in full command of the tone of this movie the whole time. Well, Josh, to defend Mr. Esterhaus here, after the script was bought for $3 million, uh, Verhoeven hired uh, a, a writer to write four different drafts of it. Um, which got worse and worse to the point where Esterhaus took his name off of it until Verhoeven realized, hey, this is getting horrible. I'm going to go back to the original draft. So I do give him credit for going back to that, but you got to give Esterhaus his credit for writing the script they should have made. Yeah, and I don't want to discount Esterhaus entirely. I mean, this is a crazily constructed script. It does have some extremely memorable lines of dialogue in it, as Jason alluded to at the beginning of this episode, which uh, I think they say the fuck of the century like three times in this movie, which is definitely... It gets a little... It gets a little... I think one would have been enough. Yeah. So. One, one, the first time he says it, you're like, oh, wow. And then it's just like <laughs> Esther Haas was really proud of himself for yeah. coming up with that. And had I to think he's the there fuck of the times. century. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and the writer was Gary Goldman, who uh, he hired to write four more drafts. So, you know, they sold this movie for three million dollars and then this guy did four rewrites. So how much was the script altogether? It really doesn't matter because it made so much money overall. Right. And that was the thing with this era of these huge script sales is that as long as the movies were huge hits, they were happy to keep uh, parceling out that kind of money. And I think we talked about this when we talked about Lethal Weapon 2 back in our 1989 season and Shane Black, who was the other major one along with Esther Haas, who was making this insane amount of money for screenplays. 
And once those movies stopped being hits, then suddenly it was like, oh, wait, we don't want to spend this money on screenwriters anymore. Right. Much like they talk about in The Player. But Josh, what's more fun for Esterhaus is all the money he was paid for scripts that never got made. Right. Well, I mean, and I think that was the thing is that as as that happened with those scripts and instead of them turning into the fourth highest grossing movie of the year, they turned into flops or they turned into movies that never got made. The studios no longer wanted to pay that kind of money for screenplays anymore. And uh, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure, with the legacy when we talk about Esther Haas's later career. Uh, finally, on the critic front, Peter Travers in Rolling Stone also had kind of a guilty pleasure take on this film. He said, Basic Instinct doesn't waste time establishing priorities. This is one charged up erotic thriller, gory, lurid, brutally funny, and without a politically correct thought in its unapologetically empty head. Still, director Paul Verhoeven's cinematic wet dream delivers the goods, especially when Sharon Stone struts on with enough come on carnality to singe the screen. What makes Basic Instinct a guilty pleasure is this shameless and stylish way Verhoeven lets rip with his own basic instinct for disreputably alluring entertainment. The film is for horny pups of all ages who relish the memory of reading stroke books under the covers with a flashlight. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter Travers never holding back on that kind of... I don't, I, I don't know about reading. I mean, imagine that back in the day where you had to read to masturbate that that seems like a lot of work <laughs> yeah jason doesn't want to put that kind of effort into his masturbation it's a visual medium josh <laughs> <laughs> some people have imaginations jason well and some people just like seeing you know quick frames of vaginas they do they do i'm sure well let's 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 get off this guy is seeing some beaver. <laughs> let's move on from that. Um, <laughs> what, what one thing, one thing kind of um, alluded to in terms of like political correctness that Peter Travers mentions there is that like another movie that we also that we talked about last season cruising, this movie was protested heavily by the gay community at the time, including some of the same stuff that they did with cruising, trying to disrupt the filming by making noises and protesters at the locations where the movie was being shot. And the idea that this the Sharon Stone character who is depicted as maybe being a killer, and really all of the characters who are maybe the killer are bisexual or gay, and that it was this, this sort of... Um, you know, cliched depiction, I guess, of the predatory gay character. And I think on the one hand, you can watch this movie and say it is not exactly a progressive representation of queer sexuality. But on the other hand, everything about it is so over the top. And as I think Roger Ebert or maybe Gene Siskel pointed out, it's not like the straight people in this movie come off well. You know? Right. So I, I think from from a modern perspective, in part because we mentioned this with cruising in part because there were just not as many representations of LGBTQ characters on screen. If there was one and it was negative and it made them out to be a killer, that was really upsetting. Whereas now we have a much wider range of those kinds of depictions. And so if there's one particular film or TV series that has a gay character who is evil, who is villainous, it's not as big a deal. I'm not a gay killer. I'm a killer who happens to be gay. Yes, thank you, Jason. <laughs> but Josh, you know what's interesting is, you know, Cruising's 1980. This is 92. Here's a fact. 
that's before the internet became popular. So the fact that everyone knew like that this was going on and they were protesting it while making it is like, was, were all these, was there, was there like a, just a big subscription to the trades back then? And, um, you know, like different, different groups of, uh, well, I, I think because maybe in part, because this movie was shot in San Francisco, which of course has a large gay community that all it takes is for one activist group to get the idea of what's going on here. Maybe they do, maybe they read the trades, maybe they read a local newspaper report, whatever it is. And they spread the word amongst the community. They have community meetings. They have flyers. I mean, any way that you spread the word about anything mm, before the internet. Flyers. Yeah, exactly. Flyers. That was a thing. And, and so that's, you have that community here already. I mean, they're shooting in a place where, where that community is prevalent. And so the word gets out that way. I don't know that there were people traveling from other states or whatever to come protest this, but certainly locally, there's a way for the word to get out. Yeah. Well, uh, this movie has many other issues, <laughs> you know, like I, I would protest the gaps in logic, but that's cool. So. Well, obviously, a lot of critics protested that. So uh, did you uh, did you see this uh, under your bed covers or whatever? <laughs> How as a, dare as a young you, sir? Teenager, How Jason? dare you? I had actually never seen this film, Josh. I'm a okay. good, wholesome, you know, yeah. uh, pornography. Uh, I got other things uh, that I never mind. I'd never seen it before, Josh. Yeah. Did you did you remember hearing about it? I mean, I feel like because we were teenagers around this time, this is something that would have been like sort of forbidden, but that peers and friends would talk about like, oh, I got to see this or whatever. Um, did that happen with you? I mean, I knew about this and I think everyone knew about it, but it wasn't like uh, woods porn where you <laughs> pass down, you know, porn from one uh, older, older kid to one younger kid, uh, you know, by leaving it under a rock in the woods. Ah, woods porn. What a time yeah. to be alive. Yeah, so. that is weirdly a thing. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I did hear about it more and I saw it maybe when I was a little older, maybe in high school or college. So it would have been several years after it came out, but it was still sort of like semi-illicit maybe, even though I was but, certainly at that point old enough to rent an R-rated movie. Right. So you weren't seeing it because like it was, ooh, you were seeing it because like, oh, I should see the movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a very famous, very successful movie that is also known for being sexy and titillating and it was worth it was worth seeing. So I think I watched it at the time and I think I liked it then. I, I don't remember for sure exactly. And if I was let down by whether it was sexy enough to live up to all the hype of it, which is often something that is disappointing. But I did watch it back when I was younger um, and, I, and I think enjoyed it. And I had enjoyed other. I mean, I loved Robocop and Total Recall as a as a kid mm -hmm. and as a teenager. So I certainly was all in on Paul Verhoeven back then. Two excellent erotic thrillers. Well, other films by this director that are similarly over the top in, in a different genre. So, Dave, did you watch this on a movie night with your parents? Yeah. Hey, Dave, it's your eighth birthday. I got just the thing. Wait till you see this bush, eh? Guys, I think I did. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. I 100% saw Showgirls on New Year's Eve with my parents and... Uh, their best friends and their kids. Uh, but I'm pretty sure we kids? also watched Basic. Yeah, like all minors. together, sitting they, like sitting and yeah, watching. Just, it was it was New Year's Eve. It was our entertainment for New Year's <laughs> Eve watching Showgirls. Um, I'm almost certain we watched Basic Instinct with them too. You know what's so bothersome about this, Josh? <laughs> not that not the situation. Like we're all amused by it, but that Dave has turned out 
so well adjusted. It's really <laughs> bothersome to me. Like, you know, you and I are both in therapy, but Dave isn't. This is bullshit. I call it right now. <laughs> oh, good for Dave. Maybe this was the healthy thing to do. Maybe Dave's parents had it right. Show the kid all of this inappropriate material at a young age, and they won't be sneaking around later on getting a complex about it. So maybe they had the right idea. Well, well, I mean, that's not why I'm in therapy, but that was very revealing about yourself, Josh. But uh, any, anyway, uh, I just can picture like Dave's dad coming home one day. Dave, when you get to the bench in the woods, go out and make a left. I left something for you under the mossy rock. No, see, what's better about it is that it's not that. It's that they're together watching it. It's not like, hey, Dave, check this out. It's like, this is family night. This is what we do together as a family. Uh, How, when that scene came on, Dave, like uh, with Sharon Stone showing, what did you say? Dave, that's what you call a, a pussy right there or something like I'm that. I'm sure it was just laughter is all it was. So, yeah. All right, let's, let's move past this. Uh, anything else on the background of this film that you would like to mention, Jason? <sighs> Josh, I feel like we've already covered the entire movie. I want to say one thing. One thing that I thought was very smart that they did was uh, they – surrounded uh the michael douglas because you know michael douglas wanted a, ma a major star to be playing the uh catherine part and uh he didn't get that they went to like 13 actresses josh um but one thing that they did really well was give douglas and sharon stone a supporting cast of like excellent character actors like we recognize almost every actor in this movie from being like one of the preeminent character actors of like the nineties and two thousands and before obviously too. So I thought that was really good. And Josh, it did get a uh, best score Academy award nomination for Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Yeah. It got those two Oscar nominations along with the editing right. nomination. So, and that's, that's a very good score worthy of the nomination. Oh, yeah. So we'll come back then and talk about more of our general thoughts on basic instinct. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about our sick and twisted audience's choice of basic instinct. Thank you all for choosing this film. <laughs> um, and if you haven't seen it and watch, want to watch it with Dave's parents, we will offer that to you as an awesome movie year experience. Yeah, sign up for the Patreon and you can watch Basic Instinct with Dave's parents. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a reward. Yeah, is it? I don't know if it is. Yeah. So, Jason, I mean, we've talked all about here, like the controversy about this film and the the sort of sexiness of it but as a movie like did you enjoy watching this movie i was enjoying it and then there was like you know how we talk about there's a gap in logic of something that's so big that you can't get past it at least for me that takes me right out of a movie okay. so like i love you know we've talked about this kind of like with the fog that kind of like northern california oceanfront setting i thought they did a really good job of showcasing san francisco uh, the eroticism was uh, up to up to snuff, so to speak, um, you know, and like I said, like Douglas and Sharon Stone, there's palpable chemistry there. I like all the, the the supporting actors. But what bothered me, Josh, and I can't get past this, is the rest of the police department, including Nick Curran's bosses, Michael Douglas's bosses, knew 
that he was sleeping with Gina Triplehorn's character, the doctor. And yet they kept saying, hey, you have to go see the doctor for your appointment. I don't think that would ever be ever be a thing ever in any era, not not just now as a conflict of interest, but ever. And it's just so convenient and such a lazy way to do things. It really bothered me. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong about that. It is a little ridiculous that that would happen and that they certainly all knew. Right. Because every time even after the first meeting in the film that he has with her, he goes back and his partner gives him kind of is kind of ribbing him or whatever about whether they're going to get back together. So, yeah. That was totally absurd. And especially, I think later in the film, there's one point where he's even in more trouble because he's gotten way too close to, to Catherine Trammell. And they are like, you have to have a psych evaluation. And at least in that scene, he goes into the psych evaluation and Gene Triplehorn is like, here are two other psychiatrists that are here to evaluate you. Like, finally. That aren't fucking you, right? Right, yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and that's the only time that they bother with that. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that is ridiculous and completely unrealistic. On the other hand, I feel like everything in this movie is so ridiculous and so unrealistic that I just went with that too. But see, to me, it's like I could see a cop getting involved with a suspect or something like that, right? And this is such an easy fix. You either say, hey, you know, we got to keep this a secret, otherwise my job's in stake, right? Or something like that. Uh, I mean, that that does it right there. Then they still have their relationship and no one knows about it and actually ratchets it up because nobody knows about it. Right. So um, and then you can do a reveal at some point, you know, to the partner, to Gus, and that that adds like an extra layer. So it's just such an easy fix. And it wasn't just like a one scene thing. It's a major plot point in this movie that it just took me right out of the whole thing, which is a real bummer because I enjoyed so many other elements of it. Yeah, I mean, I you're not wrong that it maybe could have been fixed easily. It could have added another layer of secrecy. It didn't take me out of it because again, I don't know. I guess I just thought, okay, whatever. I'm going along with all the rest of this. I might as well go along with this too. But, but you know, that's a certainly a valid point that you're making about the story here. I, you know, there's so much, I, I initially, I thought when you were talking about San Francisco and the beach and things like that, I thought your complaint was going to be that Michael Douglas was able, or both he and Sharon Stone were able to drive to Carmel very, very, very quickly. Neither of them, neither of them ever caught traffic anywhere, <laughs> right? right? I so, just kept thinking, know. like, there's one scene where he goes and he talks to her for like 30 seconds and then leaves. And it's like, did you just drive two hours to do that? Yeah, there were a lot of scenes like that, actually. So yeah, um, yeah. So but again, it didn't bother me. It was amusing to me rather than annoying. Well, I don't mind that because that's like kind of tropish of like the over the top ridiculousness of the genre. Like, right. um, but but I just but then again, you're like, OK, at least that scene had a purpose. Right. Like he went, he did his thing and that's it. Like so you can be like, that's a long way to drive for that. But at least it makes like sense from a purpose standpoint. What I can't wrap my head around is how like no one in the police department, including his bosses, would be like, hey, you know who shouldn't be your doctor? The lady you're having sex with, who's clearly in love with you, like that's just ridiculous. It's just, as I said, it's lazy. It doesn't help the movie. If you actually put the time in, you could have elevated the movie and made it better. So, like, I, I, it really spoiled the whole movie for me, which is a strange thing for one point like that. But because it was 
so, you know, that seeped into so many aspects of the story. It, it did ruin the film for me, Josh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I definitely did not, did not feel that way. Um, and uh, I wonder if in any of those four rejected drafts by another writer, if they changed that aspect of the story in any way, if that was one of the things that they changed and, and reverted to, I guess we won't. Uh, I mean, you think of how many people have to like say, put their stamp of approval on something to get it made. And like, no one's like, Hey, doesn't this seem weird? And like, it could never happen. You know, it's just, it's frustrating to me. I guess I feel like that could apply to a lot of things. Like the whole, the police department in this film, not an effective law enforcement organization on the whole. I feel They're like all making a lot of mistakes. And what I love too, is that they do massive unethical things like uh, Nick Curran, Michael Douglas's character, spends more than half of this movie investigating the case while he is suspended and not supposed to be doing anything, gets involved romantically, sexually with the prime suspect, is on the scene while crimes are being committed. And at the end of the movie, the, the captain or whatever just looks at him and is like, well, guess you were right. <laughs> and you just like, well, I guess he's back on the force now. No problem. I mean, he's not the first suspended cop to, to you know, investigate something. That of we've seen course he's film. not. This is a this is a common cop movie cliche. But in reality, if you are a suspended cop and you do that, you are not allowed. And the, the evidence is not admissible in court and things like that that we right. ignore in movies because the movie is a movie. And so I just, I guess I felt like the thing with the psychologist was in, in the same level as that. Well, I, I guess, yeah, to me, it, it, it was just too much, but like all the rest of this stuff, like you were saying how like, I'm having sex with you so I can write a book about you. That sounds fine to me. Like, you know, I, none of that was like, all that was okay with me. Right. But, and again, I love that Catherine Tram, I don't know how long, but I feel like this movie takes place over the course of what, a week? two weeks, maybe something like that. And in the entire court, like in that short amount of time, Catherine Trammell meets Nick Curran, thinks I'm going to write a book inspired by this guy's life, writes a whole book and has like the cover designed <laughs> at the end of the movie as she's printing it out on her dot matrix printer. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, An unrealistic depiction of the publishing industry. Is it though? Because Joe Esterhaus wrote this script and we know he's written, I think maybe even the first draft of this one in like 10 days or whatever. Right. Yeah. And showgirls he wrote in like a week. Right. Yeah. So maybe he's like, maybe he has like his books sound really interesting to me. Maybe he turned those out in a week. You never know. Maybe he's I, Catherine Trammell and he wants to show his vagina to the cops. I guess, I guess that is possible. And we have to look and see if, if Joe Esterhaus's associates have been murdered slash committed murders. Oh, so, you know that there's a few murders around Esther Haas, Josh. That is probably, that's probably true. Let's not <laughs> just, just make horrible accusations about this guy. I didn't say anything. I'm just saying in that satellite, that circle, I mm -hmm. mean, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's probably okay. been a few murders. Yeah. So. Actually, okay. I think he wrote about it in one of his books. That was like the basis for this character. It was like when he was a young reporter, he went to check something out and it led to a murder or something. Well, yeah, like I'm sure as a reporter, you would have come across that. Um, yeah, maybe Catherine Trammell is uh, inspired by Joe Esterhaus's own life, I guess. Hey, Dave, um, what were your parents' favorite sex scenes when you guys watched it together? <laughs> Can't say I uh, recall that. You didn't, you didn't ask. You so. didn't go for, through a detailed rundown. No, um, no. I feel like this, the sex scenes in this movie really are just on the border between actual sexiness and like total laughable absurdity. And 
like watching this, maybe, maybe I'm naive, but some of the things that like, I'm like, are people having sex like this? <laughs> I'm not sure. What, what was the one where you didn't think they could have sex like that, Josh? I mean, not that they couldn't necessarily, although there were some scenes where, you know, I remember when we talk about the room and the sex scenes where Tommy Wiseau is thrusting and you're like, he's thrusting in the wrong location there. Yeah, well, that one like, I get. There was, there was some of that. I also thought about the room when uh, when Michael Douglas is walking away and you get like the, you know, obligatory butt shot, you know, as he's walking away. Yeah, yeah, but who doesn't want to see Michael Douglas's butt? Right, so. yeah. I mean, you, you have to give like, Michael Douglas's butt is way more welcome on screen than Tommy Wiseau's butt. Well, don't body there. shame. Don't body shame Tommy Wiseau, sir. Hey, yeah. Josh, but no, what was the sex scene where you were like, are people having sex like this? I mean, That's I what think I the way that, that she's sort of like convulsing and like just way overdoing it, Sharon Stone, as she's riding Michael Douglas or as she's riding, or I don't know if it's actually her in the opening scene, because of course we're meant to be unsure who it is. I don't know if they used the body double or what exactly they did in the opening murder scene. Um, but, you know, it reminded me of that that infamous scene in Showgirls where they have sex in the pool and she's like pounding on the water or whatever. And it's just like... Well, you have to because, I mean, I can explain the physics to you at another point in time if you want to talk about <laughs> pool sex, Josh. I mean, but that's a notoriously ridiculous and bad sex scene, that scene in Showgirls. And I just feel like some of the scenes in this movie were not all that different from those scenes in Showgirls. Yeah. Well, hey, same same team, right? So right, exactly. But Josh, can I just say, if we're going to go on a little side tangent, you know, erotic thriller not that far from softcore pornography, and in, in softcore, there are always these sex scenes in a hot tub. Have you ever tried having sex in a hot tub? It's not very good. It do, it doesn't help the hot tub or the uh, sex, to be honest with you. No, I've never tried that, but I always think about that when characters in movies have sex on beaches, like. I'm like Anakin Skywalker with the sand, you know? I don't like sand. It gets everywhere. Like, it's, having sex on a beach seems like it would be the most uncomfortable, unpleasant experience you can possibly have. But it's always, it looks great in movies. It's always so erotic and exciting, and the characters love it. Yeah, I think I'd rather have sex on the beach than in a hot tub. Really? With all the sand? I mean, the sand, the hot tub, there are different things that you need for sex to work, Josh, and the hot tub negates a few of those things. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't help the, the motion of the ocean, so to speak, the, the, the connection between the two people, the penis and the vagina, the synergy between those two just aren't there with the hot tub, Josh. You can't see it, but Jason is making some very strong motions with his hands. As just, you know, so, us. you know, there's a, uh, you need you 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 need uh, uh as never mind just go let's, on yeah let, let's let's move on from that as well I feel like I keep saying that in reference you can put a blanket down on the sand you can't put a blanket yeah in but you, know, you have you been to the beach you put a blanket down and the sand still gets on it like it, it's in, it's inevitable all right I'm uncomfortable at the beach even when I'm not having sex I'm with so. Dave yeah, I don't think you're a beach sex type guy Dave. You're not a beach <laughs> sex type guy. I don't want to go to the beach, period. Yeah. No. I, I Your parents know. might be. I bet Sonny and Rich threw down at the beach on an airplane in a Burger this King This is going bathroom. a little long, guys. We should wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, but. I think maybe we've taken this too far. I feel like we do need to talk about the interrogation scene a bit, though, because that is the most famous scene in this film, the scene where Catherine Trammell flashes all of these extremely horny, sweaty, male, middle-aged cops who are attempting to interrogate her and is possibly Wayne Knight's 
finest moment on screen ever. Yeah, he's so good. He's so great in that. And I had read that Spielberg had, uh, you know, watched the movie and he and he when he saw Wayne Knight, he's like, cast that guy for a Jurassic Park. Wayne Knight's awesome in this. I think obviously I like him as Newman in Seinfeld, but he really makes like, you know, for Sharon Stone, she needs that kind of like someone to play as opposite as possible to sell the thing and or just be affected by it in such a a lecherous way. And it's perfect. Yeah. And just everything about the way that that scene is constructed. And I think if you want a demonstration of what Paul Verhoeven can do and how he can make this material just work the way that that scene is edited, the camera movements. There's one scene where where Catherine Trammell says something kind of personal about Nick, Michael Douglas's character, and the cops are obviously all sort of like surprised and intrigued by what is their relationship. And two of the cops, maybe it might be Wayne Knight and one of the others, and as she says it, their heads turn in unison as if they're like velociraptors or something like that. And it's just so perfectly constructed. And then the camera moves along with them and it's just like genius. Everything about that scene is so perfectly constructed. I love it. Absolutely. Mm. Jason has been once again rendered speechless by this film. Still thinking about how you could choose the hot tub over the beach for, for certain activities. I'm anyway, neither. Josh. I'm choosing neither of these. I think we should maybe wrap this up. Hey, I had a question, Josh. I do have Please. one question. Though. Yeah. So Dorothy Malone, who plays Hazel, the older mm-hmm. woman who murdered yes. her family and is out. Right. And who won a supporting actress uh, Oscar in 1956 for Written in the Wind and was the star of Peyton Place. She. Good for you, Josh. Classic. Uh, Good stuff. All right. Also in the big sleep, Josh. Not my question. My question is, you know, we know that Catherine Trammell's bisexual. Um, She has this relationship with Roxy. And we see this kind of interesting relationship with Catherine and Hazel. And at the end when Nick goes to visit um, Catherine at her house, you know, uh, Hazel comes out from upstairs like she's already been in the house. And and the way uh, Catherine or Sharon Stone touches her, it kind of led me to believe that they were having a relationship. Did you get that? Oh, yeah, 100%. And the way that she comes down the stairs like that is a mirror of the way that Roxy, who we know that Catherine had a relationship with, comes down the in the stairs first scene in the first scene where they attempt to go interrogate her at her house. So mm. whether that's intentional or not, I feel like it has to be the way it's mirrored like that. Absolutely. I got that impression that they were having some sort of sexual romantic thing. I don't know what what else Hazel would be doing in the movie. Mm. Cougars on the prowl. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Catherine is clearly someone with very wide ranging tastes in that area. Mm. And yeah. uh, absolutely. I could imagine yeah, and we're cool with that as long as she doesn't do murders. Right, the murders, to be clear. The problem is the murder and not yeah. the sex. So, I think yes. she did a lot of murders, Josh. Do you Catherine, think she did well, a lot of murders? I guess we do we have to talk about that maybe before we wrap up. The ending, which is extremely convoluted, but ultimately basically comes down on the idea that Gene Triplehorn's character had been obsessed with Catherine Trammell because they had met in college and that she committed these murders and framed Catherine based on the book that Catherine had written, where she described a similar kind of murder to the one that takes place in the opening. And we think that's all wrapped up. Maybe she's obviously been arrested. That's when the captain tells Nick, good job uh, or whatever. And we've got a happily ever after with Nick and Catherine. And there are so many fake outs in that final sex scene is hilarious. 
how many times Verhoeven seems to be indicating that Catherine is going to grab an ice pick and then she doesn't. But finally, in the last scene, we pan down to the last shot, the last shot, rather. Yes, we pan down to under the bed and there is the ice pick implying what exactly? Right. Is it implying that she's been murdering all along? Is it implying that now that all this has happened, she feels like she's in the clear and can do the murder? Is it implying she's going to do the murder and escape because she has access to all this money before they can catch her? We don't know, but I'm thinking they're both they both did murders in my mind, Josh. Both. I mean, there was there was an obsession angle with the both of them. I think they were both murderers. My impression of that last shot is that it's just a straight up wink. It's breaking the fourth wall, basically, and it, it doesn't play into the plot at all, really. It's the rat in the departed. Yes, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, another way that I thought it could be interpreted is that maybe she did do the murders and she and that moment is like, should I murder Michael Douglas? Nah, I actually like him. And so she leaves the ice pick under the bed and decides that they're going to give it a go or whatever. Or maybe since we've clearly established that they both like using ice picks to to pick ice. Pick ice? Which seems like a very inconvenient way to make That's a good thing to do with an ice pick, Josh. Right. And we've established that they have these in the house. Maybe it just fell under the bed. You know, after they picked some ice with it, they dropped it. So you're saying she didn't even know it was there. That's your interpretation Maybe, of it. So. I, what I'm saying is that there is no right interpretation. And the idea that you need to like add this up like a math problem is not enhancing your experience of viewing this film. So mm. I, I guess what I'm saying is that like it doesn't matter to me as a viewer or appreciator of this film whether I know who committed the murders and whether I decide that it is Sharon Stone who did it or Gene Triplehorn who did it, I still had fun watching the movie. I think, you know, now that we're talking about this, I think it was cruising where we had the same issue with Ebert where he was talking about that. And we both felt there were enough ways to interpret it where that didn't bother us. You know, there was enough there. So Right. And I think maybe cruising was influencing me as I was watching this movie because I didn't remember all that much. And at one point in the movie, I thought, is there an ending where it implies that Michael Douglas committed the murders, which is the ending of cruising. But that is not one of the things right, without get. with Al Pacino, not with right, Michael with, Douglas. With the, the cop, the cop character who is in because that would have been really out of left field if you're watching Michael cruising. Yes. And then you, the last shot is Michael <laughs> Douglas. And you're like, where have you been this whole yeah, movie? He wasn't so, in this movie. Yeah. Um, but no, the idea that the cop who is investigating the crimes is somehow the killer. And that is not something I think that you can get in any way from this movie. But yeah. the ambiguity of it, to me, is just it's another part of the absolute insanity of this film. And I went with it. So should we rate this out of sure. uh, five ice picks? I guess that's kind of, you know, uh, or, or some perverted sexual thing. <laughs> Take your pick, Jason. Five spread eagles, Josh. Why not? Let's <laughs> five the Theodore Beaver Cleavers, Josh. So. Sure. Whatever. As I want. said, there were so many things I enjoyed. And then it just took me right out of it. I'm giving it three, but it could have fluctuated up to four or really down to two and a half based on um, just that whole situation. So I'll give it three. When, when you're looking at it, that's not a bad amount of vagina staff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if one person had that many, it would be bad. I think it would be that would be uh, rough. Yeah, that'd be rough. So, you know, so. uh, I give it three and a half. I, I had fun with it. It, it certainly is problematic in some ways it's depiction of uh gay people and all of that is is still a bit rough and is so ridiculous 
overall, but I did have fun watching it and I love the performances and Paul Verhoeven's direction. So three and a half uh, spread eagles for me. <laughs> Dave, how would you rate this? How do you even spread a half an eagle, Josh? I like don't just want to know. One leg open and keep a mm. cloth on the other one there. I, I don't, I don't uh, want to think about oh boy. it. Well, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll add that up because I'm going three and a half. So now we've got a, you know, an even number there for all of us. <laughs> right. But uh, mm. yeah. Even number of spread <laughs> eagles there. Yeah. So I'm going three and a half as well. Right. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. It's just a yeah. fun experience. It's a roller coaster ride kind of film. Perfect movie to watch with your parents on New Year's Eve. That I think when you're a right. teenager. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Basic Instinct. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the audience choice winner, which was Basic Instinct from director Paul Verhoeven. And of course, because this was a huge, huge hit, part of the legacy was that both Paul Verhoeven and screenwriter Joe Esterhaas had a chance to kind of do what they wanted. And Verhoeven was a major director for most of the 90s here. Uh, of course, the next thing that Esterhaas and Verhoeven teamed up on is the film Showgirls, which is one of the most famous flops of all time, although it does have a cult following right now. And, and, is, and is not a flop now. It's turned to profit. Yeah, over time with various re-releases and everything. But at the time it was released, it was a hugely notorious failure. But I think it does a lot of the same things that this movie does. It maybe doesn't do them as successfully in part because Elizabeth Berkley is not up to the challenge in the way that Sharon Stone is in this film. But it is intentionally totally over the top and ridiculous. And I think Verhoeven is good at doing that, whether it's in this erotic thriller context or in the sci-fi action context. Uh, Starship Troopers is another film of his that I feel like has been misinterpreted and now has this big following as a sort of satire of that kind of jingoistic action film. In more recent years, he's done kind of art house type films. He's gone back to Europe where he is from and made films like Black Book and Elle and Benedetta just from this past year which had its own controversy about the lesbian nun. And there's a scene in that film where she uh, turns across a statue of Jesus into a dildo. And I mean, Verhoeven mm. certainly not losing any step in his creation of controversial ridiculousness as his career yeah. has gone on. There you go. Uh, Josh, Black Book is uh, hugely successful. He's so successful, Verhoeven, that they said that Black Book is the greatest Dutch movie ever made. What do you think about that, Josh? You know, I haven't seen enough Dutch movies probably to make an assessment on that, but certainly he is one of the most famous filmmakers from there, if not the most famous. And a lot of his early films, um, I haven't seen. I think I've seen all of his Turkish films. Delight was nominated for a Best Foreign Oscar Award at some point. Best yeah, and, and, and some of the reviews of Basic Instinct talk about his film. I think it's called The Fourth Man. That is a similar kind of thriller. Yeah, The Fourth Man from 1983. That is a, a psychological thriller that has some similar aspects to Basic Instinct. And I haven't seen those early films. I've seen everything that he made starting with, I think, Robocop in 87 and some fascinating stuff there. But um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he is the most successful Dutch filmmaker of all time. And Dave, if you were going to take a piece of religious iconography and turn it into a sex toy, which would you choose and why? 
Yeah, I, I don't know if our listeners really want to hear that. <laughs> I feel like this is a this is a Jewish Dave thing, right? MC Raven Jewish, and Jewish Dave Jew, would have yeah. a rap song about like turning a menorah into a dildo. Is that yeah? Right? I was gonna yeah. say, how would you? Where would you fit that star of David? <laughs> and how would you fit it in there? <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Josh, let's get to Joe. Let's get to Joe Esterhaus. One of yes. as you said, he and Shane Black, the legendary battles for the the largest spec sales of all time. I remember it was such like a, as a, as a guy who wanted to be a screenwriter, you'd wake up and you'd be like, Whoa, you know, they, you would hear these legends of how they're selling them for two and 3 million and up to $4 million. And, uh, you know, Esther House wrote flash dance, jagged edge, nowhere to run one night stand. And, and I was reading a lot about him and they was saying like one night stand, for instance, was a movie that he took his name off of because he didn't recognize what Mike Figgis did to it. So like some of these movies of his that turned out to turn out not so well, like Jade, right? He would watch it and he'd be like, this is garbage. This isn't what I turned in. So we can't always blame him. But the, uh, you know, we were talking about having sex with a dog in the last episode. One of the screenplays that he wrote was called Sacred Cows. And it was about a politician who has sex with a cow and his rival gets a photo or a video of it and uses it to blackmail him. And that was never made. And we're all worse off for it. Yeah, I'm sure that would have been uh, something. But uh, yeah, Jade, I think, was the one that was like the, the end of that period for him where he had sold that screenplay for so much money and the movie was such a failure. And that was also David Caruso's like big bid to become a movie star after leaving NYPD Blue, and it kind of killed both of them in terms of this huge fame. Well, I think it's because Jade and Showgirls came out so close to each other. But uh, shout out to Linda Fiorentino from Jade, who was in one of the other most famous erotic thrillers of the 90s, The Last Seduction. Yes. Yes, indeed. And uh, I saw Jade at the theater with my dad. God damn it, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, do you have a favorite uh, erotic thrillers? The genre has really died off, I'd say, you know, since the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about it recently because there have been some movies that have tried to revive it. The Adrian Lyne film with the yeah, Netflix, Anna de Armas. Yeah, Deep Water. There was a, a film on Amazon that got some attention called The Voyeurs. So I feel like there's efforts to revive this that don't exactly work. Uh, the You Must Remember This Karina Longworth's Hollywood History podcast that's extremely popular just did a whole season on 80s erotic thrillers and I think is about to do a season on 90s erotic thrillers where I'm sure Basic Instinct will come up. So it's something that people are talking about, but is not experiencing the revival necessarily that they're looking for. So, well, um, yeah, they're not um, they're not executing it in as effective a way, I'd say. Right. Right. I think that is part of it, although. Those recent movies, both Deep Water and especially The Voyeurs, I think have their fans and have people who think they are actually brilliant movies that that capture the spirit of those classic erotic thrillers. Um, I I do like. I think Adrian Lyne has done some good stuff. I like Unfaithful a lot with Richard Gere and Diane Lane. I think that's a really good movie, and Diane Lane is fantastic in that. And I think got an Oscar nomination for it. So you know, on the level of like semi respectability there. Well, you got to talk about Fatal Attraction. Speaking of Michael Douglas movies, that was a huge hit in 87. And uh, uh, I, I think going back to the 90s, we talk about like Cruel Intentions and Wild Things. Those are the two that really kind of, 
I think uh, tonally really played with it and was tongue in cheek and really got did did a really good job. Those two, I'd say. Yeah, I should have mentioned Wild Things is one of my favorite movies. Just period. I love, 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 love Wild Things, and and Wild Things could be read almost as like a parody. Of erotic well, that's playlist. what I mean, right? Yeah. They play with the tone really well. Yes, yes, I agree. I think that movie is is fantastic, and of course, the cheek is a uh, relatively tame place to put your tongue in one of these. Hey, oh, my good, good, Yeah. So Esther Haas, you know, I do think I, I want to read his books, Hollywood Animal, and then Heaven and Mel about his destructive relationship with Mel Gibson. Just sounds amazing. Josh, what about Basic Instinct 2? That sounds like a pile of crap. Yeah, I saw Basic Instinct 2 in the theater, and it was bad. I was looking up what I had written about it at the time, and I think the biggest problem with Basic Instinct that I said, and I think basically everyone said, was that Sharon Stone needs Michael Douglas or someone on the level of Michael Douglas to play off of. They both give these really big performances that match each other in the original Basic Instinct, and in the in the sequel, which didn't come out until 2006, so obviously they've way past capturing like the zeitgeist of this film anyway. Um, yeah, it's David Morrissey is the like police psychologist that Catherine Trammell plays with in that film. It's set in London, and he's just completely like steamrolled by Sharon Stone. They're not matched in any way, and it's just it's a very misguided thing. And I love this quote. Like this was one of these movies that they were trying to make for many, many years. And they went through a bunch of possible directors. I remember when David Cronenberg was going to direct it, which I think would have been totally fascinating. Right, right. Exactly. Speaking of erotic thrillers. Yes, exactly. I think that would have been great. And I would have loved to see that version of it. But they ended up with this director, Michael Caton Jones, who was just kind of a journeyman director. And I love this quote from him. He said, I was completely broke and had to take anything that came in. And of course, that's exactly the attitude you want from the director of your film. I'm broke and I'm stuck directing this movie. I mean, that's all fine and fair, Josh. But did they have to do a sex scene where Sharon Stone broke her hip with thrusting? That that was a little much for me. That's not a real thing that happened, right? (laughs) No, of course not. So I feel like it's almost possible that it could have. Michael Caton Jones went from uh, Doc Hollywood to Basic Instinct 2. Yeah, uh, not and, not in that, uh, you know, I mean, right, he did with, other with some other too. steps in between. Yes. But and also, I feel like if you were in your in a point in your career where you needed to do anything to revive it, like Basic Instinct 2 was the wrong choice there. I mean, he said he was broke. It wasn't about right. reviving this. I guess that's true. So. You know, they, I'm sure they paid him to direct the film. But yeah, it's it's bad. It's not worth seeing. I mean, Michael Douglas, one of the biggest movie stars of of all time and certainly uh, oh, a family legacy with Kirk Douglas. He's got two Oscars, one for producing. He's a great producer also, right? Yeah. Producing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and one is, of course, Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. Wall Street, a great performance. And, um, you know, he does have five Golden Globes. He's got an Emmy for Behind the Candelabra, which I still can't believe. That was the beginning of the end of the box office, I'd say. When you had uh, Michael Douglas playing Liberace, you had Steven Soderbergh directing, you had Matt Damon in it, and it couldn't get a theatrical release. That was when we should have known that the theatrical uh, times of the theater were over, so to speak, Josh. Also, I love him in traffic. Yeah, I mean, and and Behind the Candelabra, however it was released, is a really good movie. It was released theatrically, I think, overseas, just not here in the U.S. I love Wonder Boys. That's one of my favorites, and he's so, so good in that. Pre-Basic Instinct, I love the China Syndrome, and he's fantastic. And that was one of, I think, his early 
efforts as a producer as well. Dave, I know you're a big fan of the Ant-Man movies, which he is. In I am. They're movie. my favorite Marvel movies to bring Marvel. Yeah, out. they're That's fun. Cool. They're fun. Yeah. John, I, I love falling down. I mean, it's a concept you couldn't do now because white people have gotten so crazy and are horrible at <laughs> shooting people. <laughs> Um, but and the game that's one of my I think the most underrated Fincher movie so you know he's co-starred in the Kaminsky method on Netflix with Alan Arkin and now he's playing Benjamin Franklin in one limited series and Ronald Reagan in another with uh, about Reagan and Gorbachev that will be something to see so yeah he's still still great still working very consistently and of course right this massive Hollywood legacy between him and Kirk Douglas Right. Sharon Stone, as you mentioned, was nominated for Best Actress for Casino, which she's great in that movie. She is. She lost. Listen to this, uh, Josh. It was Susan Sarandon won, and the other three in that category were Elizabeth Shue for Leaving Las Vegas, Meryl Streep, and Emma Thompson. So, like, pretty big. Uh, what? That's a tough year to be competing in, I'd say. Yes. Yeah. All worthy competitors there. Yeah. I mean, she's had a very up and down career from highs like that to appearing in a lot of B-movies and stuff. And I feel like her public persona has undergone re-evaluations like numerous times if people think right. that she's underrated or that she's just ridiculous. Um, I, you know, speaking of Steven Soderbergh, I never watched his limited series Mosaic, but she was uh, supposedly very, very good in that series as well. Did you see that, Jason? I'd love to see that because that was like a weird transmedia piece, right? Where it was like kind of playing across platforms while like, You'd be watching one episode on like uh, HBO and then there'd be like a piece that would be on like the HBO site or something like that. Yeah, I, I would like, like to a, have seen that. It was like a choose your own adventure kind of thing like they have on Netflix now that had its own app. But I think that was like weirdly limited. And now if you go to HBO and watch it, you can only watch a, a linear version of it. But I'm sure that version is good as well. Yeah, um, we mentioned in our Gloria episode how she remade it in like. 99 and none of us saw that but i did like her on murderville the improvised will arnett show where she definitely is just like i guess i'll go along with this because she has to improvise everything and maybe that's not her strength but yeah. it's a very uh strange juxtaposition this is also in the flight attendant uh so, you know, like I said, Josh, uh, supporting wise, you got a lot of great supporting actors. Gene Triplehorn, you know, sliding doors, very bad things. She was in Big Love. She got an Emmy nod for her uh, work in the Grey Gardens narrative film. And and this past year, she's in the Gilded Age and the Terminal List. So George Zunda, the deer hunter, Dennis Arndt, uh, got a Tony nod for Heisenberg and uh, Chelsea Ross. He was in Buster Scruggs and he's in, uh, super pumped coming up. So just a lot of these. And of course, we mentioned uh, Wayne Knight and also Daniel Van Bargen, who played George's boss in uh, Seinfeld. And, yeah, uh, George's boss, who is uh, the IA <laughs> internal affairs officer. Yeah, and this is one of those movies where everyone, uh, Mitch Pileggi from the X-Files was someone I recognized. James Rebhorn, who is a great character actor. Right, right. Just all of these people. Yes, everyone yeah. in even the smallest parts is is someone yeah. that you are doing that, that Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV meme when you see them. Right. Jack McGee in Rescue Me. And then, of course, Steven Tobolowski. Ned? Ned Ryerson? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and so know. many other great things, Steven Tobolowski. Um, going back to Sharon Stone, I did want to mention, I know we hate the Razzies, but Sharon Stone has been nominated for 10 Razzies in her career which is, seems like such a huge number. And I thought, is she the one who's been nominated for the most Razzies? And I looked it up. Jimmy Moore? was like way down on the list. No, the number one- Sylvester has, Stallone? It's Sylvester Stallone, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Sense. Nice work. I would not have- How many? 
I think it was 15 just for worst actor alone. And that didn't include like worst supporting actor or maybe like writing awards or anything like that. But yeah, he's the, he's the bullshit. <laughs> just the fact that that's that's I mean it was a weird kind of badge of honor to be nominated for so many different kinds of things including and there were a couple of things that she was nominated for that I like had never even heard of but <laughs> the Razzies once you're on their radar it's hard to get right. off Josh I guess so. exactly yeah. exactly has anyone else's vagina ever been nominated for a Razzie Josh that's what <laughs> I mean you know knowing the Razzie probably yes I feel oh, like that's okay. something that they would do so I'm not sure though when you were going over the Sharon Stone roles, uh, did you guys mention The Quick and the Dead? Because she's so good in that, that Sam Raimi movie. I haven't seen that, but I would really like to. And I know, David, you're a huge Sam Raimi fan. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's my favorite, uh, like, you know, outside of Casino and Basic Instinct. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'd like to see that one. I know that's an early uh, DiCaprio role, too, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Here, yeah. here you go, Josh, for Catherine, Kim Basinger, Julia Roberts, Greta Scotchi, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner. That seems like a natural fit. Kelly Lynch, Ellen Barkin, maybe another natural fit. Mariel Hemingway and Demi Moore all either turned it down or were considered for the role. Yeah, I think a lot of those could have done a really good job. Demi Moore, Michelle Pfeiffer, I think both have done similar kinds of roles like this and, and could have. Not Michelle Pfeiffer. No, I feel like she's done, you know, think of her as like Catwoman in Batman Returns or something. Speaking of, uh, this, in fact, this she's year. in a leather suit. This is like basically a, uh, a fully full on nude movie. And I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer does nudity. Oh, uh, well, I wasn't right. thinking of that. I was thinking of the type of character, this sort of dangerous seductress. But I suppose that is a major concern about it is you have to find someone who's willing to do all that nudity. Yeah. So bigger stars, people who are bigger stars than Sharon Stone at this time would not have been willing to do. Yeah. And who cares? Like, uh, I'm naked from the waist down right now. That's good to know. <laughs> um, I mean, I think lastly, the the legacy thing that I want to mention, just this movie has been parodied and and homaged oh, yeah. so many times. This is one of those movies that if you have not seen it and you watch it for the first time, it's it's hard to get that kind of stuff out of your head, I feel like, because there's so many bits. And I, I think Wayne Knight himself probably participated in a bunch of those. I think you're right. Probably. I, I mean, one of those scary movies, you know, where they're like, they do a uncrossing of a leg and it's something strange uh, there. Yeah. As opposed to someone strange. hey -o, vagina jokes! <laughs> I think we got to end there, really. I think we've, we've <laughs> really good done closer, all that we yeah. can with this, with this film. <laughs> we have. We did. Blame the audience on this one. Thank you, audience, for picking it. Yes, thank you, of course. We always appreciate it. We got a lot of responses. I feel like you know we've gotten more and more responses to this poll every season that we've done. We got a lot of responses to this one, and we very much appreciate everyone who voted for this. Hopefully, the fans of Basic Instinct enjoyed our discussion here. I mean, Josh, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people pleasured themselves to this film. So if people are pleasuring themselves to this podcast, we'll take what we, we don't want to know about it. Don't tell us. Please <laughs> don't write Yay. in with that information. <laughs> that is Basic Instinct, and that is this episode and this season of Awesome Movie Year. Don't tell us about your masturbation habits via <laughs> our social media. Yeah, anything. Yeah. I mean, but we support if you, you know, we support you. You can go ahead and do it. It's, it's okay. Keep it private. Keep it private. It's your body, you yes. know? Your body, your do choice. Do what you got to do. Yeah. You don't need to know. So. All right, Josh. We're all over social media, which is a place a lot of people go to find their uh, masturbatory material. <laughs> so, um, still going. I'm at jasonharriscomedy.com. Uh, uh, that's not even true. I've flustered myself. 
I'm at Jason Harris Comedy on Instagram and Facebook, J Harris Comedy on Twitter. Don't forget my new projects, Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party websites coming soon. But those are up on Instagram. Tell you a website that got stuck in 1992 and was murdered by a nice pick is goforjason.com. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Go for Jason on Letterboxd. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow us on social media at PiecingPod, and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we talk about all kinds of movies, and a lot of the voting took place. No, we don't, Jave. All we talk about on there is how long standing ovations last at Venice. I think the group has jumped the shark, and we need to reset the whole thing. (laughs) Come to the group and contribute something, listeners, and uh, we'll have a variety of discussions in the Popcorn. It's time for a reset. Yeah. (laughs) So. Jason, before we leave 1992, what is in our next episode? Josh, we're going to go over our season epilogue, the movies we talked about, the ones we didn't talk about, and we'll reveal what's the next season, which I'm going to let you reveal it, Josh, because it's one that you campaigned for. Ooh. So tune in for all that in our 1992 epilogue, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.